Next is Julian Huppert. Julian, come forward. Uh, Ju Julian is fairly unique among politicians because he is intelligent and insightful. <laughs> uh, and on top of that, he's a very nice guy. Uh, and we're most grateful uh, for you coming to talk to us today, Julian. Thank well, you. Well, thank you very much, John, and, and, and thank you for the invitation. I'm slightly alarmed to hear that there's going to be debate and interaction and new ideas coming. Very unlike where I normally work in Parliament, where you don't have that sort of, uh, of discussion. Um, but it's a great pleasure to be here. Um, slightly nerve-wracking in some ways because I'm very much not the expert in the room. It's one of these things where politicians show up and you know that you know far more about what they're saying than they do, but nonetheless, we go, we go through with it. But I have some backgrounds. So I'm actually one of the few scientists uh, in the House of Commons, which uh, does make something of a difference, I think, when we have some of the discussions and um, uh, we try to avoid some of the, the more worrying ideas that, that ministers and governments occasionally come up with. And um, I have to say, anything medical was always a bit too hard for me. So I worked on uh, very small structures of DNA, uh, I was very interested in four-stranded DNA structures, particularly um, cancer-related. But if it got as large as a cell, it was far too hard for me, far too complicated. So the idea of working on a whole you know, organ just seems like a you know, strange thing to do. Um, it's very tempting to talk about Genomics England, because that was very much what I used to work on. My, my girlfriend still works on that space. But I will, I will refrain from making the comments I, I would want to make on it, and we can talk about those at some other time. Um, I, I've done a couple of other things looking at um, trying to actually turn interesting ideas into reality in a slightly bizarre company I set up uh, with some people trying to make it easier to collect virgin female fruit flies. Um, if you've ever collaborated with Drosophila researchers, you'll know why this is essential. Um, and it was a very interesting process. We won all sorts of awards. Uh, we got a full page in the New York Times. It didn't work, um, which was a, a very interesting learning curve. What was a more interesting learning curve was that I kept getting invited to speak at conferences on how to run a really successful biotech company despite the fact that it, in fact, was not a successful biotech company. Um, there we go. And until I was elected as an MP, I actually worked in an uh, institute of the physics of medicine. And there was a comment earlier about whether it was we had a half of a century about physics and half a century of biology. And the idea at the University of Cambridge, where I was, was say that actually we need to bring these back together. That the idea that there is a chain from maths to physics to chemistry to biology to medicine or anything like that is simply wrong. It loops around in all sorts of places. And physics and medicine do connect directly without having to mediate through everything else. Um, now, I'm not unique in being a scientist MP uh, for Cambridge. We used to have members of parliament who represented Cambridge University. I thought I'd just mention briefly one of them because there was a question about, you know, why should academics care about wealth? And one of my predecessors was a guy, you may not have heard of him as an MP, um, but he was a guy called Isaac Newton. Um, he, he did two terms as a member of parliament, rather better noted for some of his scientific uh, attributes. Um, but he then, he did a range of interesting things uh, while he was there. He then went on to become master of the mint and brought Britain onto the gold standard. And so was quite literally the first scientist to make money. Um, and so this whole idea of using science to make money has been something very important since then. And it makes lots of sense. Science and research is an absolutely key area for Britain, for Britain's future, for Britain's role in the world. If you think about what Britain will be doing in 2050, what will the point be of Britain? I find it very hard to imagine there'll be anything other than research and development that's happening now. It has to be that flow that will lead to us having some sort of... We can't just sit on the idea that we used to have this empire, we used to have this monarchy. You know, we can't sit on that. We have to move on to other things. And I think that's going to be particularly true, and there are particular advantages, of course, in getting health right. Now, there are a number of 
of interesting issues and huge challenges. There was this comment which I always hear whenever you talk to the medicine, we will do this, we will innovate, and everything will become cheaper. Now, if you look at the debates when the NHS was founded, it's very, very interesting, because one of the things which was said consistently is that healthcare costs will go down year after year after year when you set up the NHS, because people will just be healthier. There'll be less healthcare to provide, because people won't need it. And we haven't really delivered on that. Um, now, in many ways, that's a very good thing. We've developed new things. People can live for longer. We now spend huge amounts of money on people where previously they would simply have died. Much cheaper, but a less good outcome. But it does pose this huge challenge. As we can do more for people, as the things that we can do get more expensive, how do we deal with those costs? So the innovation line has to be um, absolutely key. So health has this great advantage in terms of research, that not only do you generate good financial returns, and there's a uh, a really interesting estimate that suggests that for every pound invested in medical research in the UK, you get an ongoing 30p return forever. It's a fantastic rate of investment. Really very, very good. It also helps, of course, in lives saved, in terms of medical outcomes. We can argue about whether lives saved is the only metric that one should look at, um, but also for Britain's economic role. So whatever background you come from, whether you are a doctor, whether you are a patriot, whether you're just a, you know, somebody who just focuses on the accounts, it's a great thing to do. And that's why government has tried so hard to promote, as Brian's described, a huge range of the things uh, which have happened there. Now, I wrote a paper uh, a couple of years ago on what I thought we should do about the broad aspects of science and research. What does need to happen that isn't already happening? And there were broadly three things that I said you needed to get right. One of them was the money, one of them was the people, and one of them was everything else. Um, and then it's just a matter of solving all of those. So the first one is about money. And as Brian said, we've managed to deliver a protected research budget and actually improvements in, in life sciences, as was said. That has not been easy in this country. And in fact, the Wednesday in, in 2010, there was the announcement of what the, of, of what the budget would be, the whole comprehensive spending review for the whole government. And that said that, that science would be protected. There would be no money taken away from the science budget. Uh, it would be protected in cash terms. On the Sunday evening, just before that, there was going to be a £200 million taken out of the science budget. And on that Sunday night, David Cameron, the Prime Minister, Nick Clegg, Deputy Prime Minister, George Osborne, the Chancellor, Dan Alexander, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, were having dinner at Chequers. And the phone went in the middle of dinner, and it was somebody at the Treasury saying, we've redone the numbers, there's £200 million spare, what should we do with it? And Nick said, let's put it in the science budget. He said, yep, fine, done, next. And that's how we ended up with a protected budget. Now, I've heard that, so that story confirmed by many sources. You should always go to the primary sources. The only source I have that it was Nick Clegg who said it was Nick Clegg. Um, but, but, but the budget leaping up in, the, in about half an hour's time is absolutely right. But we have won that fight to persuade people. We have, uh, we've persuaded the Chancellor. We haven't persuaded him of things about climate change yet, though that matters. But we've persuaded him that investment in life sciences matters. We've persuaded... We've got you know, Vince Cable as the Secretary of State is definitely persuaded of the case for, for science and innovation. David Willits, the science minister, very, very clearly there. So there's been some really good stuff. I'd actually like to go a lot further. I think, and I have argued consistently that we need to increase the amount of money available for science, 3% above inflation for 15 years, to make sure that we continue to attract the best people in, that we get people who are trying to work out whether to have a career in research, to stay in research, to stay in this country, knowing that they'll be able to get support. There's a lot of other things I think we can do, and in this paper we also talk about an absolutely brilliant idea, uh, which I stole completely from John, 
um, about trying to set up a UK life science investment fund, to try to have a government-backed billion-pound fund to invest, to take proceeds, to really kick-start a lot of what's happening there. Um, you can read a paragraph about that in our paper or John's article, which I'm sure he can provide uh, very, very easily. It's also about people. And that's, I think, where something like this comes in, because you need to get the right people, which means training people, getting people to stay in the area. It also means getting people from overseas, getting interactions. And I could very easily talk about immigration policy here and why we need to make sure that people can come in here to study, to work, and to learn. But the one thing I do want to say that's important, sort of almost above and beyond just the obvious things about training people, about skills, about schools, is about getting people to mix which seems to me to be the heart of this whole idea, is to get people from different backgrounds to talk together. And that is something which has not happened often enough. Um, we have too often had industry going in one space, clinicians going in another space, peer researchers going in another space. And that, that is very much changing. But it is the key to success. One of the great Cambridge institutions, the Laboratory of Molecular Biology, which has more Nobel Prizes than most countries, um, one of the things that they had as a rule was they had a very, very important tea room. And one of the rules at the tea room, which everybody went to a couple of times a day, was there were very long tables, and you had to sit at the end of the tables wherever people had got to. And so a junior researcher, a PhD student, might find themselves sitting next to Fred Sanger and having an interesting conversation. And, but rather than having groups who knew each other always talking, people always got a new conversation, always had a conversation, may turn into nothing, but may turn into something really quite powerful and really quite profound. We've seen companies set up very much like that. There's a company, Selexa, which is uh, very involved with Genomics England, uh, which was set up by my PhD supervisor and uh, now part of Illumina and is the leading sequencing technology around the world. And that came from a chat in a pub. I think pubs play a very important role, certainly in the British uh, science environment. And it's something we're trying to do in Cambridge as well with our biomedical campus. We have a, a square mile of biomedical, including uh, hospitals, including research, including companies from, the, from small startups through to AstraZeneca who are moving there in great force. And the idea is by having all of those people within a mile, we're not going to build a wall around it, they'll be allowed to leave, um, but the idea is that they will eat in the same places, they will get to know each other. We hope that that will help. And that's exactly, I think, the sort of thing that this meeting is also really about, to make sure there are those conversations happening. So congratulations on this, congratulations on the work. I've enjoyed just hearing a couple of talks so far, but this is such an important thing for Britain, such an important thing for this government, such an important thing, I think, for the whole world. So thank you very much. Thank you.